0: Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posted October 20th, 2017, we feature a major story in the new WPJ fall issue how England's minimum wage requirement to sponsor an immigrant divides refugee families, blocks love and marriage for many young Britons, and threatens a possible brain drain. We'll also spotlight other top stories in that new issue, Coverline Constructing Family. You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this.
1: Overall, immigration has been good for the U.K., but what, what people want to see is control of that immigration. And we continue to believe as a government that it's important to have mig- net migration at sustainable levels. We believe that to be in
0: the tens of thousands because
1: of the impact particularly it has on people at the lower end of the income
0: scale. British Prime Minister Theresa May last month continued to defend the crackdown on immigration she launched five years ago as Home Secretary now looking to add post-Brexit controls on EU citizens, as well as those from outside the continent. Her goal of about 100,000 is more than twice as generous as the 45,000 that U.S. President Donald Trump reportedly has in mind for 2018, but the U.K. has never gotten down nearly that far. And May's claimed concern for low-wage earners in the U.K. overlooked the painful impact of one particular aspect of that crackdown— Her brainchild called the minimum income requirement necessary to sponsor immigration of a family member, especially a spouse. The MIR has created a massive number of one-parent refugee families and prevented many young low-wage Britons, even a promising medical student, from marrying someone they met in Australia, the U.S., elsewhere or online. British Somali journalist Ishmael Inashe, based in London, explores that contradiction and the consternation involved in the new fall issue of World Policy Journal. His article is headlined Minimum Income Required: UK Migration Rules Put a Price on Family Unification, and we discussed it the other day for this podcast. Ishmael Inashe, welcome to World Policy on Air. Thank you, David. Tell us more about the rationale and politics of the Conservative Liberal Democrat coalition in 2012 that led to the start of May's crackdown on immigration and especially the MIR.
1: Well, the uh, minimum income requirement was brought into UK immigration uh, rule changes in 2012, uh, and that's when the government was in a coalition between the Conservative Party and the Liberal Democrats and the kind of context to all of this was the attempt by the Conservative Party, which had for some years since at least 2009, been committed to bringing overall migration down
0: to the UK. What are the minimum income requirements for bringing in a spouse, a child, or another family member?
1: British citizens and UK residents must prove they earn a minimum annual salary of £18,600. That's about 24 24- pounds thousand dollars before they can bring in a spouse from countries outside the European economic area. Now, this figure increases by uh, 3,800 pounds or about 4,900 dollars to sponsor a first child and an additional 2,400 pounds or 3,100 dollars for each additional offspring.
0: And how do those requirements compare with average incomes around the country and the national living wage that was introduced last year?
1: According to uh, figures from the UK tax offices, roughly 37% of earners have an annual salary below the minimum income requirement benchmark of £18,600 or $24,000 a year. So nearly almost half of adults who pay taxes in in the UK earn less than the minimum income requirement.
0: The British government itself has confirmed how far-reaching the impact of MIR can be, a report by the Office of the Children's Commissioner for England. What did it say?
1: The uh, report says that the consequence has been far-reaching for uh, children um, who live in one of these families where one parent is a British citizen or a resident living in the UK, and the other parent is normally outside the European Economic Area. But because of the changes brought in in 2012, now this minimum income requirement has effectively split up families across borders, and it's effectively split children from parents, husbands from wives, and grandparents from their grandchildren. And according to the commissioner, a report published in 2015 says that potentially up to 15,000 children who are British in the UK are impacted by these changes.
0: Give us the case history that leads your piece. A little boy who hasn't seen his father for three years and his mother who can't seem to earn anything near the required minimum. What does each of them have to say about the pain and the prejudice that they see involved?
1: Well, one of the um, stories that I cover in the piece is the story of Mohado. Now, Mohado is a British citizen, but she was born in Somalia, and she arrived in the UK as a teenage refugee, and now she lives in a part of London, which is sort of high-density poverty. It's full of housing projects, and she has two young children, and um, Mustafa, her eldest, is a boy, and uh, she deals with the issue of having a child who's about five years old who's going to school every day, and the boy asks his mother every morning when they go to school, he says, where is my father? This is a question that she told me her son Mustafa repeatedly puts to her. And now she's stopped answering this question uh, because she doesn't want to tell him that the reason why she can't, that um, uh, they can't be together as a family is because the government doesn't think that she earns enough. Um, and... She works part-time, three days a week, in London at a beauty store. She can't take up any more hours because she's got children, and she doesn't really have any realistic prospect of increasing her income. So for now, um, her family remains divided.
0: Well, I know you're right that they see it as sort of prejudice against Africans, against uh, people with darker skins, but Mm. you note that any low-income earner who falls in love with a foreigner could be affected uh, tell us about the plight of a 28-year-old British comic named uh, Liam.
1: Well, just before I mention Liam, perhaps, just to uh, pick up on that point uh, about who is impacted by these changes. And the research done uh, uh, by the Children's Commissioner for England shows that disproportionately the people who are impacted by the rule changes brought in 2012 and the minimum income requirements are low-income earners, but there also tend to be people from the poorer regions of the UK, so for example, people from Northern Ireland, people from Wales, people from parts of England, and they also tend to be women and people who are ethnic minority. So when Mohado uh, told me that she feels that she's unfairly treated um, by this, um, it's not just based on her personal observation, but it's also data and research which shows that this policy uh, does Adversely impact on people like her. Now Liam um, uh, is a young comic uh, who lives in Edinburgh, uh, and he, um, d- you know, is uh, British-born. And until the um, until he decided uh, to get married to his Australian uh, uh, now wife, he wasn't really, you know, had to sort of face the immigration uh, system like Mohada, who had come from Somalia. So he was pretty shocked that when he decided to get married because he fell in love with an Australian girl, that he couldn't get married because he did not earn the threshold required uh, for, some, for you to bring in somebody to the UK.
0: And it's not only uh, working class Britons who may feel the pain. Tell us about uh, Paul McMillan, a, a trainee doctor at uh, Glasgow University.
1: Right, absolutely. So it's not just the kind of low-income earners, it's not just people who are ethnic minorities, but it's actually also young, you know, would-be professionals. So Paul is an interesting case because he is a trainee doctor um, in Glasgow, and he, some years back, uh, met his American uh, now-fiancée during Camp America, uh, a summer uh, program they were doing together, they fell in love. Uh, His um, partner, she is um, a qualified social worker, and he wants to bring um, uh, his partner into the UK, but unfortunately he does not earn the minimum income requirement and this effectively has meant that um, when Paul finishes his uh, studies in Edinburgh he feels that he has no choice but to leave the UK because he's unable to bring his American partner and just quickly one thing he said to me which is striking uh, for somebody as a junior sort of trainee doctor who we require in the UK because we have a big shortage of medical professionals like doctors, he said to me, it's shaming to be British right now. He felt this was a stain on Britain, that he, somebody who can give back, who we as taxpayers in the UK, uh, we give financing to young people like him to be trained as doctors, but when he graduates, he feels he has no choice but to leave the UK and possibly go and live in the US with his partner.
0: Uh, Macmillan's local member of parliament actually took his case to that chamber with a warning the law could lead to a a brain drain for Britain. Say more.
1: Absolutely. And I think this is the reality uh, and the unintended consequence of this minimum income requirement. When policymakers were thinking about this in the Home Office, which, by the way, doesn't have a good track record of implementing these kinds of changes, clearly there was little thought given to the kind of impact that this would have. Um, The focus then as it seems now, was to cut net migration. But the reality is that the consequence has been disastrous for the British Somali refugee to, you know, Liam, the young British comic, to someone like Paul, who's from middle-class background, who's a professional, who will be an asset in the future, and who, by the way, the UK government is training him. The UK government is paying for his education. Yet, the unintended consequence of this policy has not been only to divide families across uh, continents, but it's also effectively, uh, as uh, Paul's MP argued in the House of Parliament lead to a brain drain uh, of, of, of top kind of would-be professional talent in Britain.
0: Was well, there any consensus among British immigration experts and economists about the larger impact of May's goal of just 100,000 from outside the EU?
1: Well, the Conservative Party has since 2009 touted this idea of a net migration target um, as a benchmark in terms of cracking down or trying to bring the overall numbers of migrants uh, into the UK down. Now, this has been viewed by, um, by analysts, by uh, academics and others merely as a political exercise. It's sort of a gimmick, really, because the government has consistently failed to meet its net migration target. To date, this government led by Theresa May under the Conservatives in a minority government at the moment, they have yet to, uh, since the Conservatives came into power in 2010, they have yet to meet their net migration target. And it's come for heavy criticism um, by policymakers. For example, someone I mentioned in the piece I wrote is Jonathan Porters, who's a professor of economics and public policy at Kings College in London. And uh, just to give you... uh, a note from the piece uh, he wrote a piece in the uh, Nice Statement uh, in April which is a left-leaning publication and he says um essentially he says to describe the net migration targets he says essentially scribbled on the back of an envelope with no serious analysis of either its feasibility or desirability this target has distorted UK immigration policy since 2010 from either an economic or social point of view it's almost impossible to justify it
0: How close has the country ever come to 100,000?
1: Well, the numbers, uh, for example, uh, show that there was a dip. Um, So net migration dipped in the first few years of this decade uh, from 256,000 in 2010 to 177,000 in uh, 2012. But it's increased since um, in the following years. And uh, at the moment, records from the government, uh, 12 months, period ending in March this year, shown migration to be about 246,000. And some of that fall is based down to the departure of EU citizens who've left the UK since Britain voted to leave the European Union in June last year.
0: You note that the figures released by the government also reveal that it had been overstating at least one alleged category of immigration law violation involving students. Say more about that.
1: Home Office um, has, for years, it now has come to light uh, this summer, been overstating the number of international students who have overstayed their visas, um, which, in short, you know, uh, undermines you know the Conservatives' um, whole agenda, which was to try and bring net migration down to the tens of thousands of people, and a linchpin of that policy was this you know, figure that there had been, uh, I think, potentially 100,000 people um, who had potentially who were students who were staying on their visas. Now we know that number was wrong by, I think, something like a margin of 96%. That actually the true figure is uh, the true figure is actually about 4,600. And you have to think about this policy. You know, in the context of the political climate in Britain where migration has become a very toxic issue for many years now, and this pledge that the consultants have you know, unilaterally made to cut down migration to tens of thousands was always underpinned by this idea that there were all these students who would come into the UK to study and they were overstaying and then finally we found out this summer that that, that was not the case and subsequently um, the Office of National Statistics uh, the UK's official statistics um, agency has now launched an independent inquiry to look into how this could have happened, how we could have been so misled on such a big scale in terms of such critical numbers which set government migration strategy and policies.
0: Will Brexit, if uh, or when it happens, mean that EU citizens will soon come under that same 100,000 cap or the various measures of regulation for dissuading them to come to uh, the UK?
1: Well, I think initially there was talk of uh, European. Union uh, citizens once Britain leaves the, the European Union um, and whatever arrangement the UK reaches with the European Union at that point, the EU citizens who now are not part of the requirement uh, which is required of those people who are outside the European Union to basically meet this minimum income requirement. There was some talk saying that perhaps EU citizens would, would, would have to face the minimum income requirement. And, hearing at the moment that that's not going to happen. But at this stage, um, the UK has been through an epic sort of journey since uh, June 2016, since the UK voted to leave the European Union. Um, And at this stage, we haven't got any clarity really, on the long term relationship when it comes to migration rules between the EU and between the UK. And we can't be certain how that kind of relationship may look like in the future. One thing that has happened as a consequence of Brexit, though, is that increasing numbers of EU citizens who are currently resident in the UK, perhaps worried about their status, um, are choosing to leave. Uh, So the numbers are decreasing. Uh, That doesn't mean, though, that the government will be any closer to meeting its net migration target even after we leave the European Union in 2019.
0: What do public opinion polls say about support for the current immigration regulations and, and not, not getting into the, po- the post-Brexit phase and belief right. that the government can really enforce them?
1: Well I think there's general um, support for uh, bringing down migration numbers in Britain Uh, I think there has been a growing public sentiment even before the the Conservative uh, Liberal Coalition from 2010 and the Conservative um, Majority um, from 2015 under David Cameron and now even with this Conservative Minority Government, even before that under the Labour Party for many years really, for the last 15 years I'd say, uh, migration has become an enormously important issue, not just in Britain of course but across the West World and across the European Union, um, the issue is that most people in the u k because there've been so many scandals over the years, I think there 's a Healthy dose of kind of skepticism. Um, And there's quite a lot of cynicism uh, about the effectiveness of the UK border agency or the Home Office uh, to manage the UK's borders. And the borders was a big theme of Brexit, of course. Uh, And when it comes to um, the net migration target, there is probably general support. There have been polls to show that most people support these kinds of policies, but actually, according to an Ipsos poll released in May, Uh, 68% of those surveyed said they didn't think the Conservatives could meet their target of 100,000. So while people support the government's efforts to cut down on migration, and people are skeptical, um, uh, but people remain skeptical um, of their capacity to actually implement uh, measures to tackle um, migration to bring it down to tens of thousands as they state uh, their goal to be.
0: How does that uh, contradictory public opinion, the pos- threat of a brain drain, other economic factors, how is all of that likely to shape parliamentary action going forward?
1: Well, I think at the moment, um, the whole process of governing in the UK is sort of grind to halt. Brexit dominates. Everything. And there are divisions currently within the Conservative Party. Just right now, this week is the Conservative Party Conference in Manchester in, in England. Uh, last week we had the Blair Party Conference. Theresa May, who's the current Prime Minister, she is under enormous strain. And I think. It's unlikely, for example, for people like Mohado, uh, who still remains in a divided family. Her husband still is in Dubai, and her children are here with her in London. Someone like her will, unfortunately, have no real short-term solution to their problem. And in terms of the parliamentary process, I don't think we're going to see any major um, shifts on migration. And the government ought to abandon this net migration target. Many experts have sort of pushed that. But at the moment, there's a kind of, over-focus on Brexit, and that's what's dominating the government's agenda.
0: In the absence of enough political pressure to end the MIR policy, you say some activists are going to court against it. Say more about that. See, in terms of the Minunka requirement, uh,
1: the avenue that activists, uh, and indeed families impacted by this uh, law, um, have tried to ch- make changes um, through taking legal action. And there was quite a big case in February of this year. Uh, The UK uh, Supreme Court heard a case uh, which involved uh, three people, so two British citizens and one refugee from Lebanon, uh, who had been unable to bring in their spouses to live with them because of the income threshold. The judges ruled, though, in February that though they recognized that the minimum income requirement had brought harsh conditions for thousands of couples and some of their children that still in principle they accepted that it was legal and the government could continue with enforcing its minimum income requirement which um, for now is the case and the home office subsequently said that the minimum income requirement still remains a central tenant of building an immigration system that works, as they say, in the national interest. So even the legal um, avenue has been attempted, activists still continue with the support of NGOs and others in the UK to continue to try and seek a legal route to getting rid of the minimum income requirement. But at least for now, the policy remains in place.
0: Ismail and thank you. Thank you. Ishmael Inashe is a British-Somali journalist based in London, an Achberg Fellow at the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma at Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism. He's also an associate at the Cambridge University Migration Research Network. Also featured in the new WPJ Fall Issue, you'll find articles about defending families from terrorist recruitment, about rape and priestly power in Nicaragua, and about the Trump effect on gay rights in Liberia. And listen next week when our podcast will focus on the dark side of global lottery empires. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Interim editor Jessica Laudis, managing editor Laurel Jarambek. Podcast producer, Isabel Vazquez. I'm David Alpern.